Church, as we continue to worship this morning, I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word, the copy of the Bible that is in front of you and that pewback that is there, and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel, specifically 2 Samuel chapter 2, chapter 3, 4, and 5. We're going to start in chapter 5 and then work our way backwards there. So 2 Samuel chapter 5 and the preceding chapters. I doubt many of us will ever find ourselves at a king or queen's coronation. Uh, These are events that most of us will not have the privilege to ever attend, but they are no doubt events that garner our attention. They garner the attention of the world, to say the least. Many of you, if not all of you, tuned in or maybe saw a few clips of the first coronation that has occurred in 70 years, seven decades there in Great Britain where Prince Charles became King Charles III. All this happens at Westminster Abbey. It's a ceremony that's filled with, as you know, pomp and circumstance and all types of symbolic meaning. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, is anointing King Charles III with holy oil, oil that is poured out of an eagle-shaped flask upon a coronation spoon that goes back to the 12th century. 900 years that spoon has been in existence, and they use it to pour the oil upon it, and then that oil goes upon the head of the monarch, upon his shoulders, upon his chest. When we think of the coronation, we think of the crowning of the king, It's the only time he's going to wear this crown right here. This very crown goes back to 1661 to King Charles II here. As as the Archbishop of Canterbury places it upon his head, so the choirs sing around him. And we know this has been 73 years coming. We know maybe you're a student of history and that's how you know. Maybe it's not that you're just a student of history, but maybe it is because you've watched the crown that you know that this was a long and winding road that led to this moment. I mean, the path to the crown had a whole lot of speed bumps, of scandals and controversy. And when you think about it, the path to any crown is rarely a smooth journey. And that's what we see in God's Word when we back up to 2 Samuel chapter 5. You're new to Dawson, maybe, and you're wondering why this moment, this Sunday, was a church we're tracing the rise and the fall of King David, the, the second king of Israel, as he comes after Saul's death, and we're tracing that long and winding road as he becomes the king of Israel. And now we come to the coronation moment, and we read of it in Second Samuel chapter five, verses one through five. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people, Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. 
David was how old? He was 30 years old when he began to reign. He reigned for how many years? 40 years. Verse 5, at Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all of Israel and Judah 33 years. And it's that verse that we need to give our attention to. Seven and a half years at Hebron that he, he reigned over Judah. And at Jerusalem, Israel and Judah, 33 years. Now we left David with a, a prayer of lament, a song of lament in 2 Samuel chapter 1. So if you weren't here last week, Saul's death occurs and it is a tragic ending to 1 Samuel chapter uh, 31, so the end of 1 Samuel. And David receives news of this, and he receives news not only of the death of King Saul, but he receives news of the death of his best friend, Jonathan, which was one of Saul's sons. And he weeps, and he mourns, he tears his clothes, because this is the Lord's anointed. And he doesn't take this uh, cavalierly in, in, in any kind of way, in a cavalier kind of way here. And so there's, there's true mourning that he has in this moment. And then we come to the conclusion of chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. And now we come to his coronation in the fifth chapter. What's the holdup? Why doesn't he become the king in the next chapter here? And that's the question. Because that gap between his, his, the death of Saul, the first king, and the coronation of David is, is all that goes wrong in those three chapters between chapter 1 and chapter 5 here. Now, with the death of Saul, you would imagine David would immediately just seize the throne, but he knows better than to do that. He knows that there is going to be a contentious fight over who's going to be the next king. He knows that there's one son left of Saul's who is going to desire for, for the, the crown to move from, from Saul to, to the son. Of course, that's what he's going to do. So his first instinct isn't to seize the throne. His first instinct is to, to bow his knees before God. Go back with me to 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. Turn in your Bible there and hear the first step that David takes as Saul is dead and the crown is before him. After this, verse 1, 2 Samuel 2, David inquired of the Lord, which just means he prayed to the Lord very specifically, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. Now we learn, we've been tracing David, and not everybody's been here in the sanctuary, but you need to know that David has wandered from the will and the way of God. We, we have seen David take things in his own hands throughout this story. We've seen David flee to foreign occupied land. We've seen him become uh, in, encased and entranced with the Philistines and joined forces with them. All of these types of things David has done here. And so this is a good sign that David in this moment is seeking the Lord. That David, when the full weight and responsibility of the kingly reign is before him, that he bows his knees saying, God, what shall I do? And God is not silent. God answers with two thumbs up. You should go to a city of Judah, to Hebron, and there's going to be one tribe there, and that tribe is going to bow their knees before you, and guess what they do? Now, a little bit of Old Testament history here. There are 12 tribes of Israel, King David is reigning over one-twelfth of them. Eleven are not bowing their knees to him. One 
tribe does. So it's the equivalent here, just to put it in our understanding, it's sort of as Governor Ivy has jurisdiction and responsibility over everything that is north of Coleman. This is what's going on with David here. I mean, he is a king. Well, let's not pretend he, he's a partial king. He's a mini king. The, the full reign he doesn't have yet. And this is going to happen for seven and a half years. I wish I could tell you it was relaxing for David. I wish I could tell you it was easy for David. It is a long and a winding road that is going to lead him back to chapter 5 right here, and it is covered in controversy, and more than that, it is covered in blood. It's a civil war that happens. For seven and a half years, Saul's remaining son, Ishbosheth. What a name. There are going to be a lot of names here that I'm going to give you, and they're, 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 they're tough names. So if any of you are expecting babies, you probably are not going to find inspiration in this sermon for your baby's name right here. David is growing stronger all the while that there's a civil war that is brewing here. The house of Saul is growing weaker. And I wish, I so wish that I could tell you that verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 2 was an indication of how David is going to rule, that him praying to God is a good sign of all the good things that he is going to do as he submits to God's leadership here. I wish I could tell you that this story is the story of a king that is growing spiritually, but the only thing that is growing is a family tree full of crooked branches. 2 Samuel chapter 3, look with me in verse 2. We have a portrait of his family. And as David takes his Christmas card picture, we begin to see this is a rather dysfunctional family tree. Sons were born to David at Hebron. His first was Amnon of Ahinoam. Of Jezreel, and his second was Kiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal, a Nabal of Carmel, and the third Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth Shepatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth Ethereum of Egal, David's wife. These were born to David. In Hebron. He's inquiring of the Lord in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. We flip over one more chapter, and now he's not inquiring of the Lord, but he's ignoring the Lord's clear word and prohibition against the very thing that he is doing here. If you're counting at home, he fathers six sons from six different wives. God doesn't approve of this. This is not prescriptive of what a king should do. What we actually have in Deuteronomy chapter 17 is a warning to not do this. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And you know this. If you have traced the family tree of David, if you know sort of a preview of coming attractions right here that we'll get to in the coming weeks, this family tree right here is going to be much, much of the infighting, much of the rivalry, much of the violence, much of the chaos and craziness of David's reign is going to stem from the, the broken branches of this family tree that is crooked. And it's filled with David saying, not what is God calling me to do, but what can I do? I've got position, I've got power, I've got prestige. 
You know what other kings do? They take. And David takes. And David takes. And David's ignoring the clear guidance of the Lord. And there's a civil war that all the while is brewing here. And Saul's remaining son is is fighting against David. And finally, Saul's remaining son loses his life because he has two of his own men who who sneak up and in, in the stillness of night kill him. And they don't just kill him, they behead him. And they bring his head to David and say, we're your men. We are with you right here. And David will not have treachery in his own reign. And his response to this is, kill these two men. Now you, by this time, say, whoa. You, by this time, realize that I wasn't kidding that the path to the palace was covered with bloodshed. And of course, this feels more like a a script from some R-rated medieval fantasy kind of movie that you're going to watch. This, This doesn't feel like the inspired word of God here. We read the Bible, and at times there are many people in this sanctuary, maybe all of us at times, have read parts of the Bible, and we, we come up to this place where we're surprised once again by the bloodshed. We're surprised by the messiness of the Old Testament. And I am sure that there are hundreds of you in this very sanctuary who have come to passages like this and said something out loud or even to yourself, I just don't really enjoy reading this. There's too much fighting, too much brutality, too much blood. I can't just do coloring pictures of my six-year-old to the things that are described right here. It's it's outside. It's not age-appropriate to that three-year-old, a four-year-old. Give me David and Goliath. Give me Samuel with the anointing oil over David. But maybe, just, just hear me out here, maybe this is just the point. Maybe we shouldn't fly over these chapters. You know, when you go from the East Coast to the West Coast to the West Coast to the East Coast, you just fly over so many states and see them from a 30,000-foot vantage point. Fly over and fly over. Who lives there? What's going on there? You do not know. And so often we read a story like David, which is sort of flyover chapters. We love David being anointed by Samuel. We love David, the welterweight champion that takes on the heavyweight champion and just uh, KOs him. And then we kind of fast forward and say, oh yeah, there was just this little slip up of David with Bathsheba. But he was a really good guy. He was a man after God's own heart. And maybe our flyovers of the Bible sometimes the flyover of the polygamy and the flyover of the murderous plots and the flyovers of the civil wars and the beheadings. Actually, we need to land the plane, rent a car, and drive through the terrain for this purpose because they remind us that God's purposes are being worked out in and through and not despite the messiness. That God actually is bringing David to his purpose. He has selected David to be the second king of Israel. And he is going to bring him to the throne through the chaos of sinful people doing sinful things, David himself included. I I really doubt that there's anybody here in the sanctuary that says the favorite part of my day 
is when the dishes are overflowing the sink. I love it. The favorite part of my day is when all the toys are out of all of their, their neatly stacked little boxes and their neatly stacked little places, and they're just scattered all across the house. I really love it when the dog has gotten out and it's on all the furniture and it's tearing. I, I love it. I love the messiness. Anybody? Takers for that? Anybody say, I, I love it when the house is just completely scattered and chaotic? No, of course we don't. We all have this instinctual desire to keep things tidy. We all have this desire to find ordered, uh, orderly nature to things and to put things in their spots here. We want things to be mess-free. We want things to be scatter-free. We, we, at times, are repulsed at a very deep place by a mess. And all of us know what it is to feel the stress of mess. But you know who doesn't? God doesn't. God doesn't. The holy, perfect God is not afraid to work in and through the mess of humanity. I mean, just ponder this theological point for just a second here. Our messiness does not pollute his holiness. Just ponder this for a second, that our sin doesn't compromise his perfection that he actually reveals himself and works in a world that is filled with compromised morality. And he works in a world that is filled with unimaginable violence and even with heart-wrenching betrayal. He works in and through it. And we want to skip over these parts. But let's not. Because we need to be reminded that God is not afraid of the messes of humanity. He is not afraid of, of, of sinful people doing sinful things that do not honor him. And God in the midst of it, redeeming, restoring, using, guiding, being present through the messiness of it. And that's not just outside of the walls of this sanctuary. I want you to know that's right here for you and for me. We're all good. Listen, we're all good at hiding our messiness in the sanctuary. I, I would say that the vast majority of us in this room are, are, are mess expert hiders. We can hide it with the best. We all, we all have a place in our apartment. We all have a place in our home. We've got a closet, and it is for the messiness. Before people come over, you gather everything up, and you throw it in the closet. Throw it in the closet. The balls, they go in the closet. The things on the floor, you're sweeping them up, throwing them in the closet. And you say to your kids, don't you dare open that closet right here. <laughs> it, but you open the closet, and things tumble out. And if I opened the closet of some of you in this room, you know what would tumble out? It would be a marriage that is stretched to the last thread. If I opened up the closet, they'd, they'd be a person that is in the midst of compromise, has pursued a path that is not of honesty and integrity. And you're months into that. 
If I opened up that closet, there would be something fall out of it. Would it be the, the uh, family that was at each other's throats and betrayal and disappointment? Despair is going to fall out and doubt's going to fall out. And I want you to hear that God is in the midst of the messiness. He is not repulsed by it, but God works in and through it all. And this brings us back to chapter 5. Because to get to the coronation of David, we've got to go through the terrain that is bloody and is messy. And at the outset of the sermon, we're looking at chapter 5, and all the tribes of Israel are gathered together, and they've realized, they've seen the writing on the wall here with Saul's remaining son dead. They know that there's going to be unification of all the tribes here, and so it's in this moment that they bow their knee before David, and for the next 33 years, David is going to reign here. But I just remind you that God is moving in the midst of, of sinful actions by sinful people. And it's interesting when you're driving through Scripture that sometimes you've got to look in the rearview mirror. Sometimes you have to look behind you to see some of the through lines of Scripture. And there's some of you that are hearing this sermon saying, that reminds me of another story. And of course it does. This is not the first time we've seen God bringing about good in the midst of messiness. It wasn't David's story, but it was a guy by the name of Joseph. You meet him for the first time in Genesis 37. He's got a dad that favors him. He's got a whole host of brothers that hate him, envious of him, jealous of him, to the point that they attempt to kill him, throw him into a pit, leave him there. One of the brothers says, we can make some money off of him. They pull him up out of the pit and they sell him into slavery. He gets brought into this place where he becomes sort of the assistant to a guy by the name of Potiphar. Potiphar's wife looks at Joseph and says, you know, that's a good looking guy. If you know the story, Joseph he resists the advances of Potiphar's wife, and then he's falsely accused of assault. So he moves from the pit to a prison. He's languishing in a prison forgotten about until the head of Egypt, Pharaoh himself, has a dream that he cannot get someone to interpret. And he hears about this guy that's in prison from one of the people that works in the palace and says, maybe we should get him here. Well, the story goes like this, and it's absolutely unimaginable, and we wouldn't believe it to be true unless it was there in Scripture, that he goes from the pit to the prison, from the prison to the palace, and God exalts him so that he would become a high-ranking official, really the equivalent of the Secretary of Agriculture, in a very opportune time for that position. Because guess what? There is going to be a famine in the land and all that ancient Near Eastern world is going to fill it. And do you know, full circle, who's going to come to Egypt, going to come to Joseph, and is going to come to Pharaoh to get food? Well, it was Joseph's brothers. They don't recognize him. So many years have gone by. But there was an aha moment at the very end of the story where Joseph says to his brothers, guess what? God meant it for good. 
God meant it to good to, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is a really truly comforting passage. And it transforms how we view the evil and the ugliness and the bad and the good, all of it in life here. It's not a promise. This passage is not a promise. Romans 8.28 is not a promise that you're ever always going to be this side of heaven to, to be able to trace the finger of God's sovereignty upon your life and his providence in the midst of the details of your life. God does not promise us that. But what he does promise us is that he works in and through the good, the bad, and, my friends, the ugly. It is a promise that he does. Some of you are familiar with the author Philip Yancey. Yancey wrote two decades ago two stellar books that are really modern classics. What's so amazing about grace and the Jesus I never knew. For years, he was the, the back columnist on Christianity Today, and his uh, brief essays were just deeply meaningful to me at very formative parts of my own faith journey. One has stayed with me for years now. Yancey says, when I was growing up, I was, a, I was a chess player. And he was not just a chess player, but he was a part of the chess club. And not just a part of the chess club, but at lunch, he and his friends would pour over books titled like this, Classic King Pawn Openings here. I mean, he was, he was, he was really into it. Study techniques, won most of his matches, like many people, maybe in the sanctuary that played chess before. You don't do it all the time. He didn't for about 20 years until living in Chicago. He comes across someone that he'd be friends that is a grandmaster chess player. He started playing them again. And he actually reflects upon what it was like to play someone that has such control over everything that occurred there in playing chess. He said any classic offensive move that he would make would be countered with a classic defensive move. And any time Yancey would, would make this risky, unorthodox kind of move and technique, it would be responded in turn. And everything that Yancey was doing, the complete freedom that he had to make any move that he wished, he reflected on that he came to this kind of conclusion that none of his strategies mattered very much. And that the superior skill guaranteed that even Yancey's purposes and all of his moves inevitably ended up serving the next move of the Grand Master. No analogy is perfect. But perhaps this helps us reflect just a bit on how God engages you and me. What, what if he gives us, as we see in Scripture from the Garden of Eden, and as we see it in our own life, he gives us the freedom to wander. He gives us the freedom to rebel. He gives us the freedom to leave the God that we love and to do things in our will and our way. But what if, ironically, every one of our missteps and even our good steps ironically serve his grand purposes and his grand design? And when you accept this, it, it transforms the good and the bad, and even the ugly that we experience. That there's nothing, even in the, the deepest and darkest closets of our own experience, that God cannot and will not use for his purposes.
there is no greater example of this than the very crux of our salvation. There's, there's no greater example of this than the very way that we as enemies of God, we who are dead in our sins, come to life through the gospel, which I remind you is simply the ugliest events. An unjust arrest, a brutal execution of the only one who could truly say that he was innocent and pure. Our salvation is God's greatest example of a good coming, not despite evil, but through even evil. And if that is true, and my friends, it is true, is there anything, is there anything that I can experience that God cannot in the end redeem for my good and his glory? Is there anything? Let us pray.